I want to say thank you to Bergen Park Church. For those of you who are not aware, you're part of a larger association called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And more specifically, you're in the Rocky Mountain District, which Pastor Jim just uh, described to you, Colorado, Wyoming, Black Hills of South Dakota. And this, the, the work that I do is primarily a pastor to the pastors, a trainer and equipper of leaders. Uh, basically, I go in and work with, with our churches and our pastors. But when I say I do that, really Bergen Park Church does that. The job that I do, the work that I do is fully supported by contributions that come voluntarily from the churches. And this is one of those 80 churches that is a very strong supporter of the district. So I'm just going to real quickly just share a couple of things that you're involved in by virtue of the fact that you finance me and my associates so we can work on your behalf. Five churches in our district this year have been in crisis. Different levels of crisis, but crisis that could potentially shut those churches down. If they weren't part of our association and if you were not contributing to the association, those churches would be no more. And we can't afford to have less churches in a culture and society that is changing as quickly as ours. So you have been investing heavily in those five churches. Uh, naturally, those pastors and four other pastors beside that have been in deep conflict in, in other ways this past year. You're helping them because you finance the district and I can come alongside them. You helped to start two churches in the past 12 months, and you're also helping with uh, three what we call residencies, where we've got church planters in residency that we are training in some of our local churches to go out and plant more churches. So there's just so much that's involved in district work, and, and, and I want to say thank you to, to Bergen Park Church for, for your participation in that. This morning, as we look at God's Word, I'm going, I, I do not like topical preaching. I like exegetical where you go to a passage. But because of the topic this morning, we're going to be uh, in several different places, and most of the scripture that I'll be referring to will uh, be up on the screen, I think. Eventually. Okay, yeah. He, he says we're getting there. Okay. Most of us have been into a Walmart, right? Have you been into a Walmart? And when you go in, you've got like two or three items and you don't want to stand in the long line. Where do you go? You go to the express lane, right? And if you're like me, there are a couple of questions that you ask. First of all, where did they come up with the magic number of 12 is express? I mean, why 12? I, I, I've never figured that out. I've got three items. But you've probably also gotten in line and noticed that there are three people ahead of you, and the person in the front of the line clearly was not educated in this community because they have a shopping cart that is just overflowing with stuff. And even if you count all 13 of their Yo! plays as one item, they've still got more than 12, right? How do you respond? How do you react? It depends on your character. And uh, there were three characters shared in the worship time this morning. Let's just kind of use them as an example and then one other. If you are like John the Baptist, who was more prophetic in nature, you will be the one who sees your role as the store manager. 
And you will walk up and you will tell them, verily, verily, you should be in another lane. And how is that usually received in our culture? Yeah, not so well. The people in line behind that person will, you know, they'll be happy, but probably isn't going to make a difference. Or you could be like Pilate. Pilate was referred to earlier in our worship service. Pilate was the type of guy who had opinions, but he'd go along with the crowd. He found Jesus to be innocent, but the crowd pressuring him, he just kind of went, well, okay, I'll just, I'll kind of go along with the crowd and I'll do what the crowd says. Or you could be like Judas. Judas was one who just joined the crowd. I mean, well, if they're doing it, I guess it's okay for me too. I'll just go with whatever the crowd says. Or you could be like the Apostle Paul, who probably would handle it differently. He'd probably begin by praying for the person. And when I say praying for the person, I don't mean an imprecatory prayer, where he prays something like, you know, may your uh, children be fatherless and your wife be a widow and that... (laughs) And knowing Paul, he would probably develop a relationship because he would see some of the hurt and damage in that person's life. Your character determines your response. Which of the four is it with whom you'd most identify? And character is shaped by culture. You and I are living in a time and place where culture is shifting dramatically. It really goes back to a landmark decision according to sociologists, according to theologians, according to whatever practice you want to look at, back in the 1970s to a landmark decision called Roe v. Wade. And most of you are familiar with Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade stated that abortion is okay. That was a huge shift culturally in America. If you are more than a couple of decades old, you've seen other shifts, dramatic changes that have taken place in the last 20 years or so. I'm going to begin sharing with you some statistics, and 98% of statistics are made up 73% of the time on the spot. So, okay, some of you picked up the irony in that. The statistics I'm going to share with you are from the Census Bureau, and so they'll look a little old, but I, I think the, the census that's taken every 10 years in America is, is a pretty accurate descriptor of who we are. In 1990 to 2012, the number of births out of wedlock have increased dramatically. Not doubled, but they have gone from 28% to 41%. That's a shift culturally. That's a shift in our values. That's a shift in our behavior. It's approaching the tipping point, 50%, where we just accept it culturally as being okay. Another change, cohabitation, has increased fivefold. It has 
increased from 11% to 51%. So it has actually gone across the tipping point. And now it's acceptable to cohabitate rather than to enter into a marital covenant relationship. Divorce is another one that we can look at. If you look at divorce in 1990 compared to 2012, it has quadrupled. It's gone from 4.1% to 15%. And it's rising. And you'd be amazed at which age group is the biggest with this. Any ideas? 55 or older. 55 or older is where divorce is taking the greatest leap. And then you come to 2012, and in Colorado and another sister state, we have legalized marijuana. That's a cultural shift. That's something that was not acceptable up until 2012. Just this past summer, we saw another big shift in culture where the Supreme Court of the United States has said it's okay for uh, homosexuals for gays to, it's legal for them to marry now in all of our states. Federal legalization of same-sex marriage. So what does the future hold? Where are we going with all of this? Well, we as believers who gather in locations such as this, and you just spent a lot of money on this building, what's going to happen? Is it possible, I think it is, Maybe not in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of many of you who are younger, that we will lose our nonprofit status, our 501c3. It is possible that churches will begin legally to be forced to practice things in church that we don't agree with. It is possible, because it's happened in other countries as well, that Christianity, in fact, will become illegal. Between 1990 and 2012, throw the chart up there, you're going to see there's been a real shift in the belief system in America. Protestants, those who self-identify as being Protestants, has gone from 60%, the majority in America, to under 50%. So we are no longer primarily Protestant in our culture. And you can see some of the other statistics there as well. But those who on the uh, far end of the graph identify themselves as the nuns, nuns are people who say, I have no religious belief, no religious affiliation, have increased from 9 to 22%. Almost a quarter of our culture now says, eh, no belief system whatsoever. So the question is, and I borrow this from a a, a theologian and philosopher named Francis Schaeffer, who uh, wrote a series and did a film series just after Roe v. Wade. That was 1973. He did this in 1976. How then shall we live? It was real interesting in that series, some of the propositions that he predicted in the 1970s have actually been where America has gone. How do we react? How do we respond? When two lesbians next week walk into the church and sit down in the front row, how do you respond? How does your pastor respond? 
How does the person on the other side of this building respond? How do you react when two homosexuals become your neighbor? What kind of a neighbor will you become to them? What's your response going to be to that? You're invited to a gay wedding. What are you going to do? And by the way, even that is a shift. Gay meant something different to my grandmother than it does to you. You know, if she was invited to a gay wedding, she would think, great, we're going to have a good time. No, Grandma, it's not what you think it is. How then shall we live? Two widowers in your church meet, fall in love, want to be together for the rest of their life. But if they get married, they lose their government benefits and perhaps some of their pay. What do you do? How do we respond to that? Well, let's look at four metaphors and behavioral approaches. Let's go back to those four guys that I mentioned earlier. The prophet. Some of us would be more prophetic in, uh, in, in the way that we would express ourselves. But how effective is that? If you go and you shake your finger in somebody's face, you cannot legislate morality. You just cannot. In fact, the only morality that you can write laws for is the morality that fits the values of the culture at large. And therefore, laws shift because values shift. When the values of the majority shifts, legislation shifts. I don't know how many of you are aware of this. Adultery is illegal in the state of Colorado. Do you know how often that's prosecuted? Never. Still on the books... Culture has shifted. So the prophetic shaking our finger in their face and telling them they shouldn't do it, how effective is that? That's kind of the approach of John the Baptist. Let's go to Pilate. Pilate just goes along, right? He just adjusts. In Luke chapter 23, it says, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rules and the people. And he said to them, I think I've got this, uh, if you want to throw this up there. You brought this man, talking about Jesus Christ, as one who incites the people to rebellion. And having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in him deserving death. Pilate found Christ to be innocent. So he says, I'll therefore punish him and I'll release him. And you know what their response was? Crucify him. No. Away with this man. Release Barabbas and give him to us and you crucify Jesus. This conversation went back three times, back and forth. But he didn't do any wrong. We don't care. And so what does Pilate ultimately do? He kind of goes along with the crowd. Or there's Judas. Judas is one who joins the crowd. Whatever the crowd is saying at the time, Judas goes along with. Judas endorses by participation the activity of the government under which he finds himself. It's the justification of behavior. If it's legal, then I guess it's okay to do. 
Now, if you were Judas and you were in that line, you'd think, well, you know, at, the, at Walmart, you'd think, well, you know, next time I'll just do the same. Everybody else is doing it. Why, why shouldn't I? And then there is the response of somebody like Paul. Paul is different than these other characters in Scripture. Paul follows the biblical principle regardless of the cost, but he does it in a very wise way. What's the biblical principle? Well, there are several, but Christ gave a couple of metaphors in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. The first metaphor was salt. He says, if you're a follower, if you're a believer, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then the second metaphor is that of light. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. These are metaphors. How, how, How do they apply to the lesbian couple that comes into the church or the homosexual couple that moves in next door or the nuns in the community and culture where you live? How how do we apply these things? How how do those metaphors apply? Well, let let me share with you five ideas here. First, you must be personally transformed. Remember I said you can't legislate behavior? Behavior is a result of your values. Until you change your values, you're not going to be any example to anyone else. You'll be like John the Baptist or Pilate or perhaps Judas. Romans chapter 12, this was written by Paul. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, and you've got to read the first 11 chapters to figure out what the therefore is referring to. But the first 11 chapters are referring to you've been forgiven, you've been justified, you've been shown grace, you're, you're not guilty, you're saved through the blood of Jesus. Therefore, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We call what we are doing this morning worship, and it is. But do you realize that as you walk through life, as you traffic in culture, every time you suppress your own personal desire and you replace it with what God wants, you take your value and you put God's value on top of it and say, I'm going to live God's value, I'm going to behave that way instead of my own value, That's an act of worship. That's an act of worship. Present your bodies as living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the daily renewing of your mind. Not just Sunday. October is not nothing month. (laughs) Every day, be in the Word, be in prayer, be in fellowship. Daily washing, daily transformation, that you may prove what the will of God is. That's how you're going to know how to respond. That which is acceptable, good, and perfect. 
So the first thing we need to do is personally be transformed. The second thing is we don't beat people into the kingdom and into biblical principle and behavior we love them in. Paul wrote another letter. This one was to a church in a place called Colossae. And he said this to that people. He said, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Going back to that metaphor from you are the salt from Jesus, so that you might know how you ought to answer every person. So it's not a, well, it's, you just do the, it's, it's fluid. It depends upon the conversation. It depends upon the situation. <laughs> I, when I was younger, high D, driver personality, I most identified with John the Baptist. I could be very prophetic. When I became a believer, I, I come out of a non-Christian home. And when I became a believer, my theology, of course, as a new Christian, was Jesus loves me, this I know. That's it. That's all I knew. And it was on a Friday night, I remember going home, and I began telling my family that they were miserable sinners going to hell and they needed to repent. (laughs) It was not the most effective evangelistic tool. I'm just saying, you know. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you know how to answer every person. How would have Paul responded to that person in the express line with an overflowing cart? He might have tried to establish a relationship with them. He might have said something along the lines of, I sense that you're very busy and rust in our culture and you just needed to get, can I help you load your groceries into your car so you can get, building a relationship. We love them into the kingdom after we are transformed ourselves. The third thing, um, uh, well, let let me go back to uh, what Paul quotes. He actually quotes uh, Proverbs 25 in Romans chapter 12. Uh, under the heading of loving them into the kingdom, he says, never avenge yourself. In fact, you leave that up to God. Rather, (laughs) here's a thought. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's my enemy. Exactly. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Because by doing that, you're going to... (laughs) This is a marginal reading. It's not in the text. You're going to, you're really going to confuse him. <laughs> you know, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. You love them into the game. So the third thing, uh, this mean, this does not mean that you participate with them and enable their behavior. You don't follow their example. Ephesians chapter 5 says, don't be partners with the world. At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Transformed hearts result in transformed behavior, not the other way around. You can't legislate behavior. So, 
just because they're doing it doesn't mean you do it. Yeah, but, no, no, yeah, buts. It isn't fair. What's your point? <laughs> life isn't fair. I want to be so transformed in my life that when a mosquito bites me, he flies away singing, there is power, power, power in the blood. You know? <laughs> we don't participate. We don't enable We live differently then. Fourth, speak the truth, but speak it in love. The illustration that I gave earlier to lesbians walk into your church, what do you do? That's not hypothetical. It's happened in some of our churches in this district. Recently, one of our pastors, (laughs) he had this series going you know the the uh, the coexist sign you've all seen that on bumper stickers that was the name of the series and he had the big poster out front that said coexist but what people didn't catch was the little heading that he had in small letters above it why we can't coexist <laughs> and this was in the middle of a downtown area and a couple lesbians walked in and thought this is going to be great <laughs> And he was talking about why we can't coexist. He was speaking the truth, but he was speaking it in love and he was speaking it from Scripture. And in this setting, this is a safe place to do that. He didn't agree with their lifestyle, but what he did do was he established a relationship with them. And in doing so, they kept coming back and they kept hearing the word. And one of them came to know the Lord and broke up the relationship. And you you see, that's the way transformation and change occurs. When you change the values inside, then the behavior is naturally going to follow. You speak the truth in love. I can share so many examples of this. I was, uh, uh, when I was a pastor and I I was doing a series on marriage, uh, there was a couple that was coming cohabitating. goes back to one of those earlier statistics that I shared with you. And I didn't know it at the time. Uh, but I'm just speaking the truth. I'm trying to do it in a grace-filled way. And they came to me and they said, we sense from the passage that we shouldn't be living together. <laughs> and I responded with a gracious, yeah, duh. <laughs> I don't think I said it out loud, but it, certainly. When you speak, the, you know what? They were convicted by the word, not by some prophet that was shaking his finger in their face. Speak the truth in love. But we have to answer the final question. What do we do when the government insists that we behave in ways that are contrary to our belief, our doctrine, and to the principles of Scripture? What do we do then? Well, let me take you to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, it says that all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days will be cast into the lion's den. What do you do? You are an American. And a congressional... Edict comes down that all churches for 30 days shall worship no one but Obama. 
Oh, you're laughing, but you're doing it nervously because you know it could happen. In verse 10, Daniel, when he knew that the document was signed, entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees. And three times a day, he was praying and giving thanks before, not the king, his God, as he had been doing previously, because that just flies in the face of the Ten Commandments. So how did that work out for you, Daniel? (laughs) Well, he became company with the lions. They threw him in the lion's den. But God can intervene in any situation. And the lions became his pets. (laughs) You see, there are times when we have to just take a stand. And whatever the consequences might be, they are. Let me finish by sharing five four or five cultural considerations with you. You, if you've been around for three or four decades or more, have been raised in a cultural situation that's different than most Christians in most nations around the world. Many of us were born into a cultural understanding that was based upon Judeo-Christian ethic, value, and moral. But as I showed you in those charts earlier, that's been shifting. And it really, I think, goes back to Roe v. Wade. And it's been downhill since then. And so it's hard for us to understand. It's hard for us to comprehend how then shall we live. But you have to understand that you can't expect others to hold the same values that you hold when they don't buy into the Judeo-Christian ethic and principle. Until you help them understand why you believe what you believe and why it's better by establishing relationship with them and loving them and helping them to see this does work out so much better they're not going to shift or change. It's hard for Americans to comprehend and understand. What's our country coming to? Well, that's another thing that I'd like to share with you. It's coming to what other Christians in other cultures have had to live with all of their life. Because other cultures are not based upon Judeo-Christian ethic, moral, and value. So we have a lot that we can learn from our foreign brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about it for a moment. If you hold one value system and somebody comes up against that value system, how, how do you respond? How many of you have, uh, how many of you are registered on the do not call list? Yeah. How do you feel when somebody calls you and starts soliciting? That's how people in our culture respond when they don't buy into the values you and I do. We've got to understand that. We've got to comprehend that. I'd also say you need to be transformed. You need to express love. You need to express grace. Even in the fear of anger, in the fear of persecution. Uh, But if you do what Paul 
recommends. You show love, you show grace. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. If he's hungry, you feed him. It's going to confuse them. (laughs) It's going to throw them off of their game. And while they're confused, then you have opportunity. John R.W. Stott was a 20th century theologian. I don't generally quote theologians because they use big words and complex sentences. But he said something that I thought was just brilliant. And it doesn't sound terribly theological. He says, how wonderful it would be if someone were to observe the Christian and walk up to him and say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. (laughs) Father God, we who live in Colorado have been experiencing some incredible culture shift and change in just the past decade. Help us to learn how to adjust. Help us to learn how to let our light shine. Help us in becoming a salt that is savory to our neighbors, to those in our workplace, to those among whom we traffic on a regular basis. Help us know how and what to say and when to say it. Help us to be transformed so that we can be your ambassadors in a culture that is difficult but not unknown to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.